This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. God, I assume Tom. This morning, I have the pleasure of speaking with education advocate and admission expert, Akil Bello. How are you today, good sir? I'm good. How are you? I cannot complain. You know, things are things are going well. Uh, the world's opening back up uh, over here while the world's falling apart somewhere else. So, you know, it's ebb and flow, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that, that is absolutely the truth. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's something, you know, you're an education advocate. You know, the admissions scandal that happened at USC was huge a couple of years ago. But I do want to ask this, get it out of the way, right, you know, right quick. Um, did you ever see the movie Back to School? Is that with, um... Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, yes, okay, yes, I probably did. All right, so there's a scene in there, and the movie, I believe, came out in 84 or 85 where they tell his character, Mr. Lemon, you barely have an eighth grade education. You don't have any SAT scores. You know, what makes you think we'd allow you into the university? And then the very next scene that they cut to is them breaking ground to the Thornton Mellon School of Business that they're going to open up, and that's what got him his admission. So although it was a joke 30, 40 years ago, you know, we've kind of seen people buy their way into university all these years along the way. Why is it now a surprise? Because it was out in the open. I mean, and I also, I, let's, let, I'm going to, I'm going to try to be fair, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's not really the word I'm looking for, but to a certain extent, like you have to accept that universities are businesses, mm-hmm. right? And in part, it's in their financial interests to play favorites with those who will help their business interests. The difference I think that we're countering is we, as a society, we've become much more aware that especially education, it shouldn't be something you can purchase. So we have the perception that education has always been or should be simply about merit, and that's never actually been true. Right. And I agree with you on that. And I'm not excusing the behavior. I was just curious as to why it was such a shock. You know, because yeah, because over the years, I don't know why was, I wasn't shocked. To be free. Yes. Yeah. Like if you talk, if you talk to baby boomers that went to university in the '60s and '70s, it was either free if they went to a state school, or virtually nothing if they went to a UC, where it was like a hundred bucks a semester or something to that extent. You know, so that's why the confusion of, you know, I worked part-time and still went to college. Why can't you do it? Right. I mean, I think that there's a huge misperception among, you know, baby boomers and even those who came after around what college admissions is and how much has changed. Um, there were huge changes in the 80s um, where laws changed how money was allocated. Um, school, you know, things like U.S. News came into prominence. And brought rankings to prominence. You know, in 1983 was the first U.S. News ranking, and they ranked one school. I bet you you can guess which one they decided was best, and that was entirely based on opinion. So we've created a system of education where concurrently we're rewarding the wealthy and the connected, but we're telling everybody it's merit and ability. So if you don't achieve that, if you can't get into that school, you thought that, hey, I didn't do as well. I'm not as prepared. Mm-hmm. But in truth, is you just weren't the profile of the person that they were looking for, which would 
advance their institutional institutional goals, which may or may not, which are partially educational but partially business. And does that play into? And I'm going to use the phrase "woke points." Uh, you know, um, not necessarily affirmative action because affirmative action is something different, but where they have to have the checklist of, all right, we got one Asian, we got one black person, we got five LGBTQ plus people and, uh, okay, no white people this semester. And then, uh, we, we let an Arab in like, it's going to push back on that because that's, that is not how it works. Okay. Cause that's what like, some that... people are afraid of. So we have to explain that. to people. Yeah. And I think, I think that, Institutions value diversity for a lot of reasons. And by diversity, I mean all sorts of diversity. Right. Um, you know, I think that the greatest advantage in college admissions is being from South Dakota mm-hmm. because yeah. that's the state that exports the fewest students. Mm-hmm. Think about how many college brochures you've seen where like, we have students from all 50 states and 97 countries. Right. Right. Well, if they don't have South Dakota and every year they struggle to get South Dakota. What do you think is going to happen when they get that one application for South Dakota? He's in. Or like, he's, in. he's in, right? So, so, like, so people want to focus on the things that they don't like mm-hmm. and ignore the things that are actually playing a bigger role, right? Um, University of California, um, for one, has a, uh, I believe, a legislative requirement for a certain percentage of students from California. So that's going to govern a lot of who they admit. Simply, who's in California applying to colleges? Yeah, this is. I'm glad we're clearing this up because you know you hear general population discuss this without fully understanding what's going on, and that's why I have to bring it up and play devil's advocate for for this topic. But what happens if we actually do go to a merit based system? I mean, let's let's take Cal. I live in California, so let's take California for example. Um, you know, uh, UCLA, you know, their football pro or their basketball program, and then USC, their football program. And then say Cal State Fresno, right, is known for its engineering school, but it's in Fresno and no one really wants to live in Fresno. Sorry, Fresno, don't get mad at me. You know, there's that level of prestige to say SC versus Fresno State, yet it's not as if the professors at Fresno State would go, you know, if you had paid $250,000 a year, I would have taught you that, but you decided to come to Fresno, so good luck to you. You know, like- so, I, I think you bring up a lot of interesting things there. Um, one is just the, the, the perception of institution and prestige driven by non-education things, right? Um, like I sort of, you sort of touched on it in terms of like Fresno's not necessarily teaching you any different. Like we aren't measuring the teaching at any of these institutions, right? Much of the prestige is driven by things that have nothing to do with the education you receive, right? Um, USC has sports that drives a lot of their national prominence, right? But you know, do you even know if they have a business program or an engineering program, right? Like I don't know. So. One of the things that we have to get away from is this hyper-focus on brand and prestige as opposed to education, right? An institution should be driven by education. And unfortunately, we've tied so many of these prestige markers into these institutions, which is what actually leads to things like varsity blues, right? That fascinated me, the whole scandal, because these are people who have all the money. Their children are going to inherit millions of dollars. Why do you need to bribe your way into USC? Right. 
what's the advantage other than it's a brand name you wanted to hang on your child? And I think that's probably, that's one of the biggest problems in education in this country is that people are willing to do all the things to hang that brand name regardless of the value that it offers. And, and when we do something like that, you know, it's like, let's break it down to even more simplified you know, example, Nike versus Fila, for example, they both cost 17 cents to make, you know, and those poor children in China and Taiwan that are working their fingers to the bone making them for us. But because we, we slap Jordan's name on it, it's now $250 a pair of shoes versus, you know, something else that would have been like 40 bucks. And I think that that's the challenge, right? And I think in education, it's specifically challenging because with sneakers, you can check, you can feel the Payless shoes versus the Jordans and go, okay, there is a clear difference in quality. With education, you can't feel it as much. You can look at it and try to guess at which one is going to give you the education you want and the career opportunities you want, but it's a little bit harder to feel. So it becomes more difficult to ignore brand. Okay. And there was an older gentleman I know. He's in his 60s now. But at the time, you know, he's originally from New York, and he decided to go to University of Miami because that's where all the rich New York kids that couldn't get into the Ivy League schools <laughs> went to. So he decided to go there as a poor child to network with the rich kids that could get him in better with the father, you know, or with the fathers and the and the business owners. Um is that something, you know, and that was a beautiful ploy because now he's a self-made millionaire in that regard, but he was smart enough to figure out this is the place to go to network. Um, what should people look for in a university aside from brand? And, you know, then we'll pick up with the, with the series of varsity blues from there. I mean, they should look at first educational opportunities in terms of what's the career I'm interested in and does the school offer the program, right? Um, do they have a well-regarded program that leads to the career opportunities that I want? So if I want to be, you know, in journalism, I'm going to look for places that have strong journalism programs. And knowing teenagers, they don't know exactly what they want, so maybe they're thinking about journalism and teaching mathematics. So they want somewhere that has a good education school and a good journalism school. And then you think about also the social experience that you want, because in theory you're going to live there for three or four years. Right. Um, I had a student recently tell me that they don't want to go to a college that's two buildings in the middle of a city. That was a perfect description because now I can cross NYU off the list. Right. <laughs> right. Now we don't have the right. We don't have to think about those type of places. That student was simply saying, "I want an actual campus experience." Mm -hmm. So you think about the educational outcomes, the career opportunities, the, the the social experience of living there. Right. Do you want to live rural or you know or not? Um, that same student told me that they looked at Baylor and they didn't have a percentage listed for black or Hispanic students, so they crossed that off the list. That makes sense to me. You're coming from New York City. I don't know if you want to go to Baylor where, you know, you can name every black kid within the first week. Mm -hmm. And so, so all of those things, I think, play a role. And then you start to consider, can I get in? Right? So you have to create a list that accomplished that a list of schools that have the social, educational, and career outcomes that you're looking for. And then on top of that, you know, if you are an athlete, because we're not going to exclude them from this, those blue chip schools that they want to attend. Like if you're a wrestler, you're right. going to go to Iowa. If you're a football player, probably SC or Alabama or, you know, whatever sport is your sport. 
Well, I think that for recruited athletes, it's almost a different process, especially for for the the money athletes, right? The money sports, basketball, football. If you're a recruited athlete, you're thinking about the millions at the end of your freshman year, right? So I think that changes the dynamics entirely. I think at that point. The career and the sports become intertwined in a way that the education is secondary, right? And I think that that changes the dynamics. If you're not a recruited athlete, then again, it's one of the contributing factors, but probably not the main factor because the likelihood of you making money on it goes goes significantly down. Right. And so, you know, those third tier schools, if you just want to, you know, I'm not saying third tier as in education wise, I'm talking like division three. You know, mm-hmm. if you're not good enough and not a recruited school, you know, athlete, but you still want to play. You're still going right. to get the same quality of education at a D3 school and play right. your sport over there versus, you know, going to Iowa to wrestle again or, you know, UNLV or wherever. Right. So it may actually be that you want to go to a D3 school because the education is, you know, better for whatever reason and you can play your sports versus going to a D1 school where, they don't have the program you want. The education isn't as strong in the field you're interested in, um, but the sports team is better, right? But you're going to ride the bench for four years. Right. Yeah. Uh, Akil, I, tell me about the documentary or the docuseries itself. You know, how did this come about? I, you know, it's coming to Netflix, Operation Varsity Blues, The College of Mission Scandals, and The Test and the Art of Thinking. Um, you know, what was the catalyst for the documentary itself? Obviously, the research is there and the scandal being blatantly open in everybody's face. But like, did you pitch it to them? Did someone find you knowing that so, your background in all of this? Like, how did it come about? So those are two unrelated documentaries that I just happen to be in both of. Mm-hmm. Um, my current project is a Facebook Live uh, series, which is all about college admissions um, called Getting In With Akeel and Friends. Um, the Netflix varsity, well, so the first documentary I was part of was called The Test in the Art of Thinking, was a project of Kenobi Films where they were investigating standardized testing and how that plays a role in college admissions and society, and they interviewed me as an expert. Um, and then a few years later, I was part of the Varsity Blues documentary, which was put together by an unrelated group out of Netflix. Um that, you know, they were exploring the Varsity Blues scandal, which was a very interesting, you know, whole series that went down because it was a, it was a federal investigation and led to, you know, over 50 convictions. Um, so I've just been an expert interviewed around college access and testing in both of these things. I do, I do want to ask you one, one thing since we touched upon very briefly in the beginning about meritocracy itself and the notion of, you know, I had a 4.0 that should virtually guarantee me in. And then you mentioned South Dakota is the state that least exports students. So they're on the quote unquote list or hit list of being pushed into admissions for a university. If we did do a meritocracy system, you know, which I don't know if it'll work or not in the regards of we take your name and race off the application and gender and just randomize a, a barcode that comes up and says, this is your code. This is what's being submitted with your records. Uh, good luck to you. Would that be easier as a meritocracy or would that just cause more confusion? I think the the starting problem with that is sounds like you'd have to define meritocracy in a very narrow way okay. that 
most colleges are unwilling to, and probably rightfully so. Most places, most articles that you see say the word merit. What they really mean is test scores. Mm-hmm. And test scores aren't necessarily objective. They're fairly easily manipulated because we have a $2 billion test prep industry that has existed for 70 years to help people boost test scores if they can pay for it. Mm-hmm. Right? So test scores aren't necessarily objective measures of academic acumen. They're a measure in some ways of what you've learned, but also more importantly, how well you test. And so the problem with the notion of meritocracy is what would we consider merit, right? And often those tools that we consider merit are aligned with wealth. If you take even AP classes and AP tests, AP classes tend to be more prominent in wealthier school districts and in wealthier schools. So is it really merit if you haven't given all students the opportunity to take an AP class? Right, so that's the challenge of the sort of the notion of meritocracy, um, just in terms of sort of like using these quote unquote objective measures that aren't really objective. The second problem with it is, do you really want to go to school with all the kids who took calculus and chemistry and, you know, I don't know, literature from English and that's all they took and they're all the same student? Right? Most colleges don't want that. They don't want to simply admit the same student from different high schools who have all had the same educational experience, which is why they want students from China and students from South Dakota and students from Louisiana, because they want to create a more diverse classroom where you have broader discussions because thinking is different because of the different experiences of the students. But in public education, have we gotten to the point where it's not just group, I mean, where it's become groupthink and the expression of ideas that either the instructor might disagree with or other students might disagree with is no longer engaged, but tried to shut down? I think that that is over, that notion is overwrought. I think that notion is not representative of what's truly going on in classrooms. It's one of those things that seems to me that as soon as you scratch the surface of that, you know, there, there's, there's a good podcast series on it that, um, you know, all of the outrage around, you know, um, you know, colleges turning children liberal and this and that at all. And when you dig into those stories, they often boil down to there was one minor incident and it was taken out of proportion and it was captured by the media and it was told as a national story. And in truth, it was one thing that happened in one classroom that has been misrepresented. So I think the notion of group think is, is being largely misrepresented. Well, we all do know that uh, the old adage, if it leads, it leads. Yes. So, you know, that that's yes. part of it. And there's a lot of fear-mongering going on. There's a lot of misinformation going on across the board, no matter if it's war, if it's health, if it's God only knows what else. You know, so I'm glad that you and I are able to clear this up. Um, with with your YouTube, with your, I'm sorry, with your Facebook live show, Akila and Friends, what are some of the more difficult topics that people want addressed? that are too scared to ask publicly and come to you to uh, decipher or help them decipher? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think the question that most people don't, I think the question, the, the sort of most difficult question that people tend to ask is in some form or another, they ask our colleges lying, which is really intriguing to me as a question that, they, you know, that a family, a child, a parent will come to me and say, 
is this college being honest about how they're considering my application? Right. And that to me is, I understand it because people want certainty, but it's also concurrent to me. I, I keep thinking, well, if you think they're lying to you in the application process, why would you apply there? Because if you feel, if you really feel like they're going to lie to you coming in, what are they going to do when you get there? And they already have your money. Right. So I think, so big part of this is families trying to navigate one, reducing their uncertainty in applications, which I don't know is necessary to do. I think you have to settle in and accept the uncertainty and two, having a lack of faith that colleges are being honest about who they want to admit and who they don't. And what about the universities that have legacy pages? Like, you know, at one point I was going to apply to my doctorate at uh, one of the universities we mentioned earlier. Uh, that was part of the scandals. And, uh, you know, there was like six pages of legacy starting with grandparents if they had attended the school, you know, down to siblings. Like, does legacy truly play that big of a, a role in admission? Or is it just because the school charges so much that they're like, oh, we know this person can afford it if grandpa went there? Hello? 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 Yes, hello. Okay, can you hear me now? Now I can, yes. Okay, I don't know what happened there. Um, okay, so most colleges admit most of their applicants. So the I think the conversation around, oh my God, it's hard to get in, is a misrepresented conversation because it's really narrow unnecessarily. It's really talking about 50 out of more than 2,000 colleges in the country, okay? Um, then there's the question of how much of a role does legacy play? And that's really hard to judge. Um, it definitely plays a role at some colleges, and it probably shouldn't. Because, I mean, I, I was just talking to somebody from Alabama, and Alabama is a school, you know, there are schools in Alabama that still give advantage to applicants whose parents and grandparents have went there. I feel like the University of Alabama is one of them, if I'm not mistaken. University of Alabama is also celebrating their first black student who is still alive and attending the celebration. And he's what, 65? Something like it. I think it's a woman, and I forget her name, but yes, she is, you know, she's in her 60s, maybe her 70s. Wow. Right? So currently they're rewarding people who've had generations of being allowed into the school and celebrating the woman who's like, yeah, you're still alive. You can't have, like, you can almost not have legacy. You might not have children and grandchildren old enough to qualify for legacy. Wow. But we still will give advantage for that. that. And I was kidding about the age thing. I didn't realize it was really that close. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. It's, it like, there are, I actually tweet that period. I have a thread on Twitter every time a school says something about, like, you know, legacy or something. I just find their first black student. And far too often, that first black student is still alive. It'd be interesting if she actually responded to you on Twitter, if she's on there. Oh, that's funny. I should look for her now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's sort of frightening, right? That, like, they can, they can award, you know, when you've had generations coming here, but we've only allowed, you know, less than a generation for your family. Right. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Because yeah. being the son of immigrants... You know, it, we have a different perspective on, on certain things of like, why wouldn't it be this? Or why would this ethnicity be excluded when we weren't welcome in our own homeland? That if this is the land that's supposed to be opportunistic for all of us, 
you know, how come this particular group doesn't receive the same opportunity? Right. I think that that's one of the sort of interesting things in America is we have these notions of meritocracy and bootstrapping, almost none of which are true. You know, you had mentioned self-made millionaire at some point. Mm-hmm. Every time you dig into a self-made millionaire, they're not self-made. Like, it's like the Kim Kardashian self-made or whichever Kardashian was on that Forbes list of self-made billionaire. Like, how, how are you calling somebody whose parents were millionaires a self-made anything? Right. Well, this person was... And I think we do that over and over again. The only reason why I say self-made is because he was an orphan. Yeah, yeah. yeah I get that. Right? And, I, and there, there actually are legitimate people who qualify for things like that, right? But I think that what happens is... America creates these media narratives around things like merit and self-madeness and pull yourself up by the bootstraps that are almost always more untrue than true. But it makes right? Even the notion of bootstrapping, right? Like you literally can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. <laughs> it's literally impossible. But that's like the American thing. You will pull yourself up by this. You will accomplish this impossible task. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have the American dream, and you know, I think George Carlin said, uh, you know, the reason why it's called the American dream is because you have to be sleeping to believe it. Yes, <laughs> and that is a great quote. With with everything that we see in society now, uh, you know, polit- I don't I don't want to get into the politics of things because it's just so mucky on top of everything else, where it's divided red team, blue team, and we just see DNR next to the name, so that's the way people automatically vote at this point, God forbid. Um, you know, uh, Los Angeles has seen that with, with George Gascon and, and his policies, and that's why there's a recall for him. Um, how does that permeate into the university, and where do we get more purple lines drawn instead of these hard blue, hard right lines, not only in education, but in society, uh, because education is what hopefully influences society? Uh, That's an interesting question. I think that the the answer to that is it depends on the institution, right? I think that much like society, different pockets operate in different ways. Um, There are some, you know, fundamentalist Christian universities, um, so it depends on the institution how much politics will play a role. Politics probably plays more of a role in public institutions. Um, actually, I don't even know if that's true. Well, probably true because public institutions are often governed by the legislature in the state, right? And they have board members that are appointed by the legislature or by the governor. So politics can influence a university because of the appointments to the administration, right? Um, so how well or how quickly that might trickle down to a classroom is hard to judge, right? So I think that, you know, one of the things that families have to do as they search for universities is, you know, they might try to ask more questions to discern what role political conversations are are influencing the classroom. And this is, this is something else that I want to ask. Uh, we touched upon, you know, people don't want, like NYU, you know, they want a, a full-blown campus versus two buildings in downtown where they got to take the train across the city to, to okay. get to class. Um, commuter schools versus on-campus schools. You know, people that will go to, let's say, Auburn, 
you know, where it's, okay. uh, you know, a small town school that it's essentially a college town. They just go there, they go to school, they bounce out after four to six years, depending if they decide to get their master's degree or not, you know, or they're just bad students or wanted a second, second degree, whatever it is, versus say someplace like San Francisco State that would be a commuter school. Um, you know, should people look into those as well, depending on college experience or just, you know, some people don't want to leave home. Like, what would you tell the advantage of a commuter school versus an on-campus life? I would turn that the other direction. I would think that the student should figure out what they want and then find schools that meet those needs. So if you're interested in staying at home, you know, I'm not sure how many, you know, I think part of it is there's this notion of what college is. I think usually when people say going to college, they're perceiving a four-year on-campus experience straight out of high school. Right? And increasingly, that's actually not what college is. Increasingly, you have um, what they call non-traditional students who are older, who may have taken time to work before going back to school. So all of these things will play a role in what you want out of college, um, whether you want to live on campus or live at home. And that may be a choice. And I think that everyone applying to college has to make those choices, and that will help them narrow down where to apply. Right? If you're... You know, if you have to stay home for one reason or another, if you choose to stay home for one reason and want to attend as a commuter, that's lovely. Um, you just have to, you know, make those decisions. My first, one of my, I actually transferred twice for colleges. Um, I was at St. John's University in the 90s when they actually didn't have dorms. Um, I don't think I knew that when I applied, uh, but my grandmother lived six miles away, so I was planning to live with her anyway, right? And so it wasn't an issue for me. Although, in retrospect, I think living on campus was a better experience for me personally. Okay. So I think students have to consider all those things when they're applying. Do they want to live on campus? Do they not? If they don't live on campus, what's the cost of living in the city, or are they going to live at home? Because okay. you could always, you know, move from New York to San Francisco and not live on campus. Right. What about, and before I let you go on this, and again, you know, Akil and Friends, Facebook, the Facebook live uh, stream, and they can always catch the replay on there, and, the, and you'll fill us in on the dates for that that it, it streams. Uh, the world closed down for two going into our third year. And I know people that were at ASU, uh, you know, young people, 19, 20 years old, that now came home and are doing all their classes at ASU or Penn State offers online programs or Cornell offers online programs. What about the people that want the degree from what a prestigious university, but want to live in a town they could afford, like say somewhere in Wyoming? You know, like, That's tougher. Okay. It depends on what degree you're talking about. There are more fully online graduate programs, as far as I know, mm-hmm. especially at quote unquote prestigious universities. There are more, you know, fully online graduate programs than there are undergraduate programs. Right. Right. Now that may be changing out of the pandemic, but I still think like even with the pandemic, right? It was like you basically were admitted for the on campus program and then you got forced to do an online program. Right. So there aren't very many universities that I know of that have that are quote unquote prestigious and have a fully fleshed out online degree program. Right. Because it's just interesting to see the way that perspective is going to go. Like, you know, if I wanted to go to Northwestern, but I still wanted to, you know, be able to afford to live in Ohio or, you know, Tennessee or something, 
but I wanted that degree from Northwestern, you know, I'd have to be cautious and like, it's not a chem degree, obviously. Right. I think that that's going to take some research and some looking into. It's not a bad option. I mean, if the university offers it as an option, it's an option you can consider. Right. But the question is going to be become, how do you find out which universities offer it? How much research do you have to do? And then researching it to see if the degree is worth it. And then the caution is there's so many for-profit institutions. Like generally the online programs are starting, you know, are, are much more prominent at for-profit institutions where the degree doesn't carry the value um, of some of the, the, the traditional universities. So that's that's something that you have to be really careful about. Yeah, it's just something that, that seems the way the world is shaping up, the way things are going, uh, you know, the options of, because we can now work from home, so many of us, versus yeah. going to have the campus experience you know, and, and just what people are looking for, um, you know, it, it's got to change the whole di- dynamics, uh, dynamics and demographics of everything. It will eventually. I don't think it's there yet. Probably another 20, 30 years. Let's hope not. Cause I, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic, it seems like the notion of online school has to be, is being discussed in the halls of academia and every institution is trying to figure out how and whether they're going to do it and what that would mean for the campus experience, right? Because one of the complications around colleges is for many of these traditional colleges, the entire town's economy is built around that, that campus and students coming to campus. So it's not a simple decision to create programs where 70% or, you know, 30% even of your students no longer come to campus. Right. These are going to be some interesting times, Akil, and I, I thank you for being able to help not only myself, but other people discern what is you know most valuable for them and what they want in education for themselves and for their children. Oh, my pleasure. And where can we find Akil and Friends? What, you know, what night does it premiere and what time? So the first uh, session is going to be on March 3rd at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 if you're on the wrong coast. Um, I think and the New Yorkers are. You guys think you're going to stay Okay. <laughs> you can get more information at akeelandfriends.org. One more time without the laughter. I'm sorry, man. Uh, you can get more information at akeelandfriends.org, but the first session is March 3rd at 4.30 Pacific time. The beautiful part is I like keeping East Coast time because you, my day is done three hours earlier. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Akil Bello, thank you so much for your time. Also, where can we find you on uh, Twitter if we want to argue politics with you and Instagram if we want to see what you had for lunch? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Akil Bello. Um, and actually also on Instagram. On Instagram, you'll more often just find pictures of my children or some such thing. Um, on Twitter, you will find me talking education and lots of fun things like that. Fantastic. Akil Bello, thank you so much for your time, man. We have, we have to talk wise about, uh, you know, Instagram and Twitter. Either we want to see pictures of your food or argue politics. That seems like. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Take care, sir. All right. Take it easy.